Thanks, Liam, for leading us in worship, preparing our hearts for the Word of God. And so if you have a Bible, I hope you do, turn with me to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Chapter 2, we'll be focusing on verses 8 through 9. So as you find, we'll have the verses up here, but sometimes it's good to have a Bible, take notes in. Uh, This past week, my wife, Christine, and I went to see the movie uh, Jesus Revolution. Have you gotten a chance to see it? All right, some of us. Uh, For those who don't know, it's a story of how in the late 60s, it's a based on true story, in the late 60s and early 70s, thousands of young people, mostly hippies, that's a funny word, isn't it, hippies, Uh, in Southern California came to know Christ through the ministry of uh, really two men, Lonnie Frisbee, a born-again hippie, and Chuck Smith, a middle-aged pastor of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. The story is mainly told uh, through the eyes of one man who gave his life to Christ during that time, evangelist and pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in Riverside, Greg Laurie. Now, I did enjoy the movie, would highly recommend it, but I attended Calvary Chapel Riverside, now Harvest, from 1976, yes, I was, I'm that old, uh, to 1982, where I heard Greg Laurie tell stories about his conversion and how the church began. And as I watched the movie, I felt either I wasn't remembering events very well, which is possible, or the movie had changed some of the details to add to the drama for the sake of time, which is pretty normal in a based on uh, a true story movie. However, I wanted the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So I went looking for the book. I didn't know if there was a book, uh, but there was. Uh, It's called Jesus Revolution, How God Transformed an Unlikely Generation and How He Can Do It Again Today. It's written by Greg Laurie and Ellen Vaughn, published in 2018. I would recommend the book as well. I read it, actually listened to the audio book, and found that my memory was sound. The movie had changed the timeline of some events to make the story fit that, all the elements fit in that two-hour time frame, but the basic people and events are true, so see it with confidence. But that's not my point. What is your point then? Well, hold on a second, I'll tell you. One of the points of the movie, and especially the book, was that people are searching for something more. Love, meaning, purpose, happiness. In the 60s, the hippies, young people were trying to find it through drugs, protesting the Vietnam War, make love, not war, Uh, what they called free love, or as my wife accurately, more accurately described, free sex, and uh, rock and roll. And today, people, especially young people, are still searching for something more in these and other ways. Drug use is on the rise. We've even legalized one of the main drugs. Free love sex has been taken to a whole new level. Rock and roll. Well, I'm not sure if today's music holds up to that of the 60s and 70s, but that's my opinion. Not sure if that's a a thing now. I don't know. And anti-war protests have expanded to Uh, protests, period. 
there seems to be a need to champion a cause. Saving the planet, ending racism, LGBTQ plus rights, abortion rights, animal rights, and more. And my point isn't that every cause is wrong or bad, although some certainly are. My point is this. We human beings created in the image of God, created for His purposes, are hardwired to seek something more than mere existence. That's one of the things, certainly, that makes us... My dog doesn't care about his purpose or meaning. He cares about his food. And that's about it. However, for us, because of the image of God in us has been marred by sin, we are prone to look for meaning and purpose and happiness and love in all the wrong places. We're an easily deceived lot. Believing that this drug, this cause, this human relationship will supply what we need. But that's just a lie. The Bible teaches that what we truly need can only be found in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, very familiar verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Matthew 6.33, he also said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Our needs will only be met by seeking the kingdom of God, seeking God and His purposes, seeking His glory, all of which is found, as we've seen, as we've studied through Colossians, in uh, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. In Colossians 1, Jesus uh, is purported, Paul declares, He is fully God. And He created each and every one of us. Therefore, He alone can provide us with our meaning, our purpose. Provide us with what we need. And that brings us to our passage for today. Because as in the 60s, before and before, and the 70s, and today, and in Paul's day, there are always Uh, false teachers who say they can provide you with what you need. They know the deeper way. They have the secret knowledge that leads to happiness, meaning, purpose. But in reality, what they offer is meant to stop people from coming to Christ and seduce people away from Christ. To keep unbelievers in captivity and take believers captive by that which is not Christ. And in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, our passage for today, Paul seeks to equip his readers to resist these false teachers. And he begins with the mandate to resist captivity. Verse 8, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. This is a command, a mandate. I use mandate because they're all going to be M's today. I did it. I've been not doing that, and I felt really bad, so I'm going to give you all M's. I know that's important to you, to Gary especially, but he's not here. He's in Mexico. Another M. Amazing. Uh, okay, what, what am I, where am I at? Okay, so this is mandate. This command is written to Christians, to the church telling us to resist the forces that are seeking to take us captive. But I want us also to realize that these same forces are at work in the unbelieving world. 
seeking to keep people in their unbelief, keep people in captivity, away from Christ. And so as we study this passage, I want us to see it from two perspectives. First, with regards to ourselves and our brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a mandate to resist those who are seeking to take us away from Christ. This is Paul's main point, and this will be my main point to strengthen us in our ability to resist captivity and hold firm to Christ. But second, I want us to also see this passage from the perspective of those who don't believe. We're not going to focus on this because uh, that's not what Paul's focus is, but we'll reflect on it at the end of the message. So prepare for that. So as we look at this text, keep in mind that uh, that what we're commanded to resist as the church, as Christians, what we have through Christ already escaped, those in the world are currently captive to. I want our hearts to grow in compassion for those in captivity. Those who, like the hippies of Chuck Smith's day, are often very different from us. I've uh, listened to some podcasts and things recently and asking people like Greg Laurie, who made this movie, who are the hippies of today? And there are various responses. Maybe you have some thoughts. I'm not going to give you thoughts on that. You can think, who are the hippies today? Who are rebelling against our current culture? I want us to grow in our desire to reach out beyond our comfort zone to those who are currently living by deceitful, Christless philosophies. Okay? Okay. Now, we'll look at these destructive philosophies in our next point, but first I want us to focus on Paul's mandate for us to resist. See to it that no one takes you captive. The word captive means to seduce, to spoil, to lead away from the truth. And when we look at the phrase, uh, takes you captive, it means to carry off. As prisoners were taken off, by those who are victorious in war, like Daniel was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember our study in Daniel. Paul is saying, if you value your life, if you value your freedom in Christ, don't be seduced by false teachings. See to it that no one leads you astray, away from the life-giving truth of the gospel. See to it that no false teacher captivates you. And you say, well, how do I do that? Well, we'll look at that maybe mainly in our third point, but here we have some some info as well. Let me point some things out. First, I I think Paul has already given us the main way to uh, avoid being captive in the the preceding verses, verses 6 and 7 that we looked at last week. Let me read them. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving, see to it that no one takes you captive. You see the context, the context there. Prior to telling the Colossians to avoid being taken captive, Paul gave them instructions and encouragement to walk in Christ, to live for Christ. Remember and live based on the fact that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Walk in dependence on Him, rooted in Him. Stick your roots deep into Him, built up in Him, knowing that He provides you with life and stability and growth, and He is that firm foundation that you're built up upon. 
Walk in the faith regarding Christ. Live based on the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that you were taught. And finally, walk in thanksgiving for Christ. Abound in giving thanks for all Christ has done for you, through you, in you. So I would say, what we saw last week, what I just summarized, walking in Christ is the most important way to avoid being taken captive by the deceptive philosophies of false teachers. But along with that, Paul wants to make clear just what these false teachers are offering. He wants to pull back the curtain, revealing to the Colossians and us exactly what what's at the heart of the captive, this captivating message. So he gives them and us the, the message of captivity. And why do we need to know this, this message? Well, let me illustrate it this way. Recently, I've been uh, re-watching the old Mission Impossible series. I know some young people, including Brian Drummond, our faithful associate pastor, didn't know that before Tom Cruise made the movies... There was an awesome TV series. But that's not my point. I just like to give Brian a little. My point is that in this awesome Mission Impossible TV series, each week, Jim Phelps receives his mission. He's equipped with two things. When he receives the mission, he's, a, he has, he's got two main things. First, he has himself and his team of highly trained agents. This, to me, is, is like what we saw last week. Paul equipped us with what we need to accomplish our mission of not being taken captive by evil forces. We've received the training to walk in Christ. So that's the first thing. But to accomplish each mission, Jim is also given a message. A message that, if you remember, self-destructs in five seconds. But before it goes up in smoke, the message provides the necessary information to accomplish the mission. Specifically, who the enemy is, what the mission is, what their tactics are, things like that. And that's very similar to what Paul does for us. He's trained us to walk in Christ, and now he describes for us the enemy and their tactics. Again, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We're going to look at each of these elements of this philosophy and empty deceit. But before we do, I want to point out that even though Paul's addressing the church in Colossae regarding the specific philosophy and empty deceit that they're facing, he does so in universal terms. What I mean is, by that is, in this message... Paul doesn't give specifics about the philosophy that false teachers are peddling in Colossae. He'll give some specifics later, but now, instead, he uses general terms that apply to all schemes that seek to seduce people away from Christ. I think Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does this for the sake of all believers throughout history. We can stand on this. This, isn't, this, this is a general description. We may not... Uh, we may, we may not uh, experience the same philosophies and evil deceit as the Colossians, but what always seeks to captivate us is philosophy and evil deceit, or vain lies. Now, just to be clear, Paul's not putting down all philosophy. 
Philosophy is the Greek compound philos, which means to love, and sophia, which means wisdom. Philosophy simply means love of wisdom. In Paul's day, everything that had to do with theories about God, the world, and the meaning of life was called philosophy, similar today. This was true for both pagans, the Gentiles, the Greeks, and the Jews. Basically, a philosophy was and remains a way of looking at the world, uh, both the natural world and the supernatural world. So again, Paul's not down on philosophy in general. However, he does have a major problem with any philosophy that's seeking to captivate the believer. Paul goes on to describe the nature of this philosophy and empty deceit. He says, it is according to human tradition. This philosophy comes out of the traditions of man, humanity. What this means is the false teachers presented their philosophy as something have been, this has been handed down over time. It's not new. It has a solid, it's a, a firm foundation from their perspective in human history. It stood the test of time. Many brilliant people have held on to it. Therefore, it must be true. Anyway, that's the argument. But there are several major problems with this philosophy. First, it's, it's coupled with empty deceit. It's filled with lies. It cannot be trusted. Just because something has been around for a while, just because something is traditional in this culture or that culture or our culture, and many people follow it, does not make it true. The world is filled with things, religious religious things, philosophies that many people have believed for a long time but are empty deceit. Let me give a few from my perspective. Some of you may disagree with these. Ghosts, reincarnation, aliens, no. Astrology, psychic phenomena, karma, just to name a few. So first, human tradition cannot be trusted because we're easily deceived. We fall in... We fall for this stuff. Then second, if you know anything about history and humanity, you know that we uh, have not always been, uh, have not only been deceived, but we've just been flat wrong about many things, such as the universe has had no beginning. It's always existed. We used to think that. And then came the Big Bang Theory, not the TV show, the actual theory. The earth is the center of the universe. Used to believe that. People with lighter skin are superior to people with darker skin. People used to believe that. Some still do, unfortunately. Bloodletting is, proper, is for proper medical care. Not so. Smoking is a healthy appetite suppressant. Anybody ever get that one, mother? That's why I'm so short. Because my mom used... No, just kidding. Where am I... You must wait an hour after you eat to go swimming. Man, that ruined a lot of swimming time for me when I was a kid. Pluto is a planet. Apparently it's not. And so much more. History is filled with human error, right? I remember two specific things that I was very wrong about. I know you find that hard to believe. Being a Star Trek guy in 1977, I believed that this Star Wars movie was going to bomb big time before I saw it. I looked at the trailers, I go, that looks really stupid. Uh, my wife, uh, also, and then in 1986, 
My wife tried to convince us that we needed this thing for our home called a personal computer. She was a computer science major and she needed it. And I said, nobody needs a computer in their home. What's the point of that? Maybe I was right about that though, right? Maybe more. Anyway, my... <laughs> anyway, we're wrong often. Now, what I find troubling is not that we're wrong. You know, obviously, we're wrong. We get new information. We change. That's, that's part of being human. The problem is, though we know our ancestors are wrong, and even ourselves have been wrong, we're wrong again and again. In our pride, we believe that we've got it right now. We're good now. We figured it out. They got it wrong, but we finally figured it all out. We seem to have no humility as a culture when it comes to understanding our place in history. What will future generations think about the things we believed is not a question we often ponder. So my point is, relying on human tradition, which is filled with uh, lies and error, for your philosophy of life, for your way of living, to give you meaning, purpose, happiness, love, etc., is not a sound approach. But it gets worse. These human traditions, Paul writes, are in turn according to the elemental spirits of the world. There's some debate about actually what this, what this means, these elemental spirits refer to. I think the ESV study Bible explains it well, so let me read what it says. The, the elemental spirits, Greek, one word, stoikeion, is sometimes translated the basic principles of the world and then interpreted to be something like the foundational principles of pagan religion. In the ancient world, however, the term stoikeion was widely used of spirits in Persian religious texts, magical papyri, astrological documents, and some Jewish texts. Paul is likely using it here to refer to demonic spirits. It is the equivalent of rulers and authorities, powers, you know, that we, we, he writes about in Ephesians and, and here in Colossians. So this philosophy and empty deceit comes from human tradition which is bad enough, but this human tradition is ultimately based on elemental spirits of the world or demonic spirits, demonic satanic forces. So I want us to see what this means and what it doesn't mean. Paul is saying that there are philosophies masquerading as human tradition, but in reality are from the pit of hell. And not only that, but these elemental spirits are in our world and are seeking to have influence over our lives. Uh, do you believe that? Do you? Serious. Really? Because our 21st century culture is based on the current, uh, based on the current human tradition of uh, naturalism. That is the absence of the supernatural, absence of God or spirits or anything like that. That would, would say believing in demonic forces of any kind is the stuff of superstitious fools. And that's another thing humans are wrong about. But unfortunately, we're all too often influenced by our own culture. And so it seems that we modern-day Christians, even us evangelical Bible-believing Christians, downplay the demonic, satanic forces at work in our world. We'd never say... 
Uh, We don't believe they exist because they're certainly in the pages of the Bible, and we believe the Bible. But ask yourself, do I live as if they exist in our world today? For example, do my prayers reflect the existence of elemental spirits seeking to seduce or tempt me away from Christ? Do I ask God, as Jesus did in the Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one? Jesus also prayed that that people would be released from demonic influences, possession. The disciples had tried to cast out a demon, but, but couldn't, and they asked Jesus why, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. My point is, according to the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and others Uh, They did not dismiss these demonic powers as things of superstitious fools. They knew they existed and could have influence over the lives of people. Now, so that's sort of what it doesn't mean. I want to help us understand what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we need to fear, okay? Just a few verses later, Paul also knew that Christ had triumphed was victorious over these elemental spirits. In verse 15, he writes, He disarmed the rulers and authorities, similar to the elemental spirits, and put them to open shame He triumphed by triumphing over them in Him. Yes, these elemental spirits, these rulers and authorities, seek to captivate Christians, but ultimately, they've been defeated by Christ. Therefore, those who walk in Christ do not need fear them. We do not need to uh, fall for their false philosophies and empty deceit that are, based, that are based on human traditions and ultimately come from demonic forces. And that brings us to the final and most fundamental problem with these false philosophies. That is, they are not according to Christ. This is the most devastating uh, condemnation of all. They are Christless philosophies. However... As I did last week, let me warn you again, these philosophies are very deceptive. You must be aware of them. You must know they're seeking to captivate you because although they are not according to Christ, they may and often do use the name of Christ. They may even worship a Christ. However, they do not mean the Christ who is taught in Scripture but a Christ that's according to human tradition and elemental spirits or demonic forces. All Christless teaching, no matter how rational or reasonable or logical or traditional it might seem, is empty. It's vain at its core. You can see how this is true based on what Paul has already said about the supremacy of Christ. If Christ is who Christ, uh, uh, Paul purports Him to be, then a Christless philosophy would be worthless. And that's where Paul goes next. He's mandated that we resist being taken captive, and he's given us uh, the heart of the message that seeks to captivate a Christless message. Then he concludes by returning to the supremacy of Christ as the motivation and means to resist captivity. Two M's. Now, I just added the second M before I printed out the notes. So you don't, probably don't have enough space in your notes if you're taking notes, but just cram it in there. Motivation and means to resist captivity. 
See to it that no one takes you, uh, takes you captive to these Christless, demonic, empty, deceitful philosophies. For, verse 9, in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This is a repetition of what Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 19. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And why does he repeat it in, in this context? Well, certainly because it's crucial doctrine to hold on to. But I think Paul wants to remind us of Christ's supremacy over all things. He's saying that in Christ's supremacy, we find motivation and means to resist captivity. Christ is more than merely God-like. He's more than simply overflowing with the character of God. He's the essence of God. God fully dwells in Christ. The statement, for in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, does away with any Christless philosophy. Any philosophy that seeks to downplay or add to Christ's role in our salvation and eternal life is seen to be void, seen to be meaningless without Christ. We can see the fullness of God in His work in the heavens and creation around us, but in Christ we see the face of God. Why would we turn to anyone or anything else to meet our needs? I say again, why would we turn to anyone, anything, any philosophy, anything else to meet our needs if we can have Christ? Often the Apostle Peter gets a bad rap for being impetuous, speaking out of turn, but sometimes he really got it. Jesus had just preached a a difficult-to-understand-and-accept message to a group of people. I think he's trying to separate the wheat from the chaff here, Jesus is. And many of his disciples, not the twelve, walked away from him. This is in John chapter 6, and in verse 67 we read, So Jesus said to the twelve, so picture it, uh, the twelve are standing around, there's people just, I I can't, I I don't know what you're saying, I can't dig it, I don't know, I'm out. Do you want to go away as well, Jesus says? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter understood that only in Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, can be found eternal life. Christ is the source of eternal life, eternal meaning, eternal purpose. It would be utter foolishness to walk away from Him, to walk to anything besides Him, to go anywhere else but to Him, to seek meaning and purpose and happiness in anything but Him. This truth is great in itself, right? It ought to motivate us in our mission to avoid being taken captive by deceitful, empty, Christless philosophies. But there's something else, and this, this is amazing. Let's read verse 9 and 10 together. For in Him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Christ, full of deity, God in human form, Emmanuel, God with us, fills us. Christ can hold all the fullness of the deity. Uh, we cannot but we are full of His fullness. We are filled with and by Christ. 
It sounds uh, uh, mysterious and wonderful to me. Paul again asserts Christ's supremacy. God has uh, definitively revealed himself in Christ. Christ is the all-sufficient fullness of life and salvation for Christians. And the only way we can find fulfillment, meaning, and purpose is in Christ. Paul counters these deceptive philosophies. Since Christ is the head over every power and authority, why should anyone imagine fullness could be provided by anyone or anything but Christ? The more we receive His fullness, the more we can receive. Christ is an infinite source of everything we need. He provides us with the big things that, that we, I keep saying over and over, meaning and purpose and happiness and love. But He's also there providing what we need in the moment. In the moment, we need wisdom. He gives us wisdom, strength. He gives us strength, courage. He gives us courage, grace and faith and so much more. As we continue to walk in Christ, we experience the, the satisfaction of His fullness. A continual stream of filling and overflowing our lives. In his book, uh, In Him, The Fullness, R-E-O White, three initials, that's a, that's, that must be big. He writes of Christ, He is a path, if any be misled. He is a robe, if any be naked. If any chance be to hunger, he is bread. If any be a bondman, he is free. If any be but weak, how strong is he? To dead men, life he is. To sick men, health. To blind men, sight. To the needy, wealth. If you're full of Christ and growing in, the full, in that fullness, if you're overflowing with Christ, the false teachers, their appeal, uh, uh, the empty philosophies of our age will not appeal to you. If you're full of Him, how can you want anything else? So let us seek the fullness of Christ. Let's seek our joy, our meaning, our purpose, our happiness in Christ. Let's seek more of Christ. Let's seek all that He offers. Not in these Christless philosophies, but in Christ Himself. That's how we resist captivity. Amen? Now before Brian leads us in communion, I want to conclude with a final reflection and application. This goes back to thinking about those who are currently in captivity. This has been Paul's message is to the church. He's given us uh, ample ammunition, uh, means, motivation, warning, if you will, uh, to resist this captivity. But I want us to remember something. That we were, at one time, before we came to know Christ, we were, we were captivated. You were captivated. You were in captivity, I was in captivity, by some, uh, maybe various, Christless philosophies, empty deceit, different lies, different philosophies. But through Christ's death and resurrection, and by God's grace through faith in Christ, we've been rescued from captivity. We've been delivered into the kingdom of God. However, the world is filled with current captives. They were born into captivity, and they continue to live in captivity. They're living by some false philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and elemental spirits. But just as you and I were released from our captivity, there's hope for them as well. Jesus 
Quoting Isaiah 61 in uh, what, what many call Jesus' inaugural message. This is when he went into the temple and read from Isaiah. And then he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. And by captives, that's, that was it. that's everybody. We were all at one point captivated. When Jesus walked this earth, he proclaimed liberty, freedom to the captives. And by his death on the cross, he provided liberty for the captives. Now we cannot, you and I cannot provide liberty, but we can proclaim it. That's our mission as representatives of Christ in this world. As Paul instructed Timothy in ministry, he wrote, And the Lord's servant, that's Timothy and us, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is a whole sermon there. So, you ready for another? No, just kidding. Let me just summarize quickly. Paul is saying to Timothy and us, there are people all around us who are being held captive by the devil, the evil one, Satan, which clearly means they're believing and even espousing false Christless philosophies and empty deceit. If you're surprised by all the, uh, the clearly wrong philosophies in this world today, uh, don't be. There's a bunch of captive people, captive to the enemy. As captives of the evil one, evil one their lives and world words are filled with evil. But our response to this is clear. It's clear. It's not revulsion. It's not avoidance. It's not slander. It's not mocking. It's certainly not condemnation. It's kindness. Teaching patience, endurance, correcting with gentleness. We oftentimes like to correct, but we forget the with gentleness. And with this approach to those who the devil has, has captive, there's the possibility of repentance and escape into the arms of Jesus Christ. If you've seen the Jesus Revolution movie or know the history of Chuck Smith, this is what he did. Instead of, instead of so many Christians in churches at the time who were avoiding, slandering, mocking, and condemning the hippie culture, and those who were being held captive by the enemy, he opened his doors, the doors of his church to them. And the rest is history. And I pray that we as individuals and as a church not only resist in ourselves being taken captive, but we open our hearts Open our doors to those who are being held captive so that God might perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, where true happiness and meaning and purpose and love and eternal life and relationship with God can be found. Would you pray with me as Brian comes forward to lead us in communion? Father God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful for the truth that can be found in Him, Father. I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would walk in Him, we would live for Him, and thus resist 
the many uh, temptations, the philosophies of this world that are, that are nothing but lies from the devil. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would give us uh, stability, firmness rooted in you, Father. And Father, in that firmness that you would give us the ability to reach out to those who are being held captive. Father, help us to be, uh, have open hearts, not to accept the deceptive philosophies, Father, but to accept the people, to love them, to correct them with gentleness, to, to engage with them in the first place, Father, to open our doors and hearts to them, Father. I pray that Bridges would be an opening, receptive church, and we as individuals would be that as well. In Christ's name, amen.